Well, thank you for clicking on the podcast. I appreciate you checking it out. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and we're going through the book of Genesis verse by verse. In the last episode, we began chapter 6, and we had a discussion about who the sons of God were that are mentioned in those first four verses. And we mentioned three different views for who they might be. The first view was that those sons of God were fallen angels. The second view was that they were the descendants of Seth. Third view was that they were either kings or rulers of the land. We also had a discussion about the children or the offspring between these sons of God, whoever they were, and human women, and that these offspring were the Nephilim. And then we talked briefly about what we know about the Nephilim, and that is where we'll pick it up this week. And I want to start by actually touching on something mentioned within the first four verses that I didn't cover last time, and that is verse 3. So let's begin there. So if we back up to verse 3, it reads, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Some translations say that my spirit shall not contend with man forever. The King James Version says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Some commentators also make the case that it can mean to to shield or to protect. So what is being communicated here is that God is proclaiming that he will not continually and endlessly allow his life-giving spirit to enliven or to shield and protect man. The spirit of life is God's to give. The breath of life was given by God, and so it also is his to take away. But then verse 3 continues and says, His days shall be 120 years. Now this last part of verse 3 is interpreted by people in two different ways. Some believe this 120 years is telling us that God is giving man 120 years before he will execute judgment by bringing the flood. These 120 years before the flood allows people time to repent and therefore demonstrates God's patience in exercising his judgment. And notice that although God's patience is sometimes long, it is always limited. Other people, however, argue that God's reference to 120 years here is going to be the new limit for lifespans, unlike the longer lifespans that we've seen thus far, like those mentioned in the genealogy of chapter 5 that we covered. Now, people who believe this verse is referring to the 120 years before the flood, they'll often cite 1 Peter 3.20, which says that because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. Now those who believe that God was giving man these 120 years before the flood also suggest that that means Noah took 120 years to build the ark and all the while was preaching about God's impending judgment. However, nowhere are we told that Noah took 120 years to build the ark. Even if the 120 years does represent the time before the flood, it doesn't necessarily mean that Noah took all of that time to build the ark. I mean, he may have. It's possible. But that's a conclusion that some people have reached outside of what Scripture says. The other option for the 120 years, as I mentioned, is that the 120 years now represents what would become the new standard for lifespans. In other words, from now on, nobody's going to live on average more than about 120 years. And what we'll see is that immediately after the flood, the lifespans recorded begin to decrease rapidly, and they're going to bottom out to about what we see today. And this is still the norm today. 
If this is the correct interpretation, I think an interesting question is, if the Bible got the 120-year lifespans right, why do we think it got the longer lifespans in the previous chapter wrong? So now that I've gone back and kind of touched on verse 3 that I didn't touch on in the previous episode, we'll continue on then and we'll pick it up with verses 5 through 8. And verse 5 begins, And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the first thing I would mention here is just a great contrast between Genesis chapter 1 and what we see here in chapter 6. When God created Adam and Eve on the sixth day, remember what he said? And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now contrast that to what we see here in chapter 6, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, listen to what it says. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I think it would be difficult for us to imagine a society like this. And when we get to verses 11 and 12, we'll see that what this is describing is that the advancement of sin has reached its climax, so to speak, and is now permeated every corner of society. Again, I think this is more difficult to imagine than we might think at first. I mean, certainly we can bring up examples of more modern atrocities and evils, I mean, such as Hitler and the Nazi concentration camps. Uh, we think of uh, the Soviet Union and under Stalin, uh, China's Mao Zedong. I mean, just these three dictators and their regimes alone murdered over a hundred million people. I mean, that is a staggering and sobering number of human beings who were murdered. But even these regimes fail to replicate the apex of sin referenced here in chapter 6. So in the Bible here, we're not talking about a lone dictator and his cronies or his regime. We're talking about everyone in society. You know, Adolf Eichmann was a member of the SS in Nazi Germany and was one of the major organizers of the Holocaust. He was convicted of war crimes in Jerusalem and he was executed in 1962. Now he is someone we would obviously consider as being a terrible human being. But listen to his reported last words just prior to his being hanged. He said, Long live Germany. Long live Argentina. Long live Austria. These are the three countries with which I have been most connected and which I will never forget. I greet my wife, my family, and my friends. I am ready. We'll meet again soon, as is the fate of all men. I die believing in God. So this man, who helped organize the slaughter of six million Jews, was a family man. He had children. He had friends. The only difference between this man and us was his day job. I mean, he came home. He kissed his wife. He ate dinner with his family. He played with the kids, just like we do. And so the point is that everything in him was not only evil thoughts continually. 
as it's described here in chapter 6 regarding society at large. So imagine how bad it must have been at this time on the earth when, as verse 5 tells us, remember, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I think it's only then that you can start to understand why God would bring a flood to wipe out the evil on the earth, which by that time was totally reprobate. By the way, did you also note Adolf Eichmann's very last words? His very last words were, I die believing in God. He died believing in God, or so he said. I mean, he helped murder six million people, but says he believed in God. Remember a few episodes back when I mentioned that belief in God is not enough? Remember when I mentioned that even Satan and the demons believe in God? In fact, they do better than just believe. They know full well that God exists. So again, the lesson is that belief that is not enough. Believing that God exists is not enough. You must trust in God and accept the provision that he has made for your sin through Jesus Christ. You must accept the pardon God has offered you through Christ. Notice that in his last words, Eichmann made no mention of Christ. Now I want to shift gears for a minute and mention a few words about verse 6. Verse 6 says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So it says God regretted creating man, and that it grieved him. And that brings up a a slightly theological question, which is, what does the Bible mean when it says God regretted creating man? You see, that word regret usually means that you're sorry or repentant about something that you did. You're disappointed. Like you didn't know ahead of time what was going to happen. But is the Bible saying that God didn't know ahead of time that man would rebel and sin? Of course not. God knew all along what was going to happen. God knew Adam and Eve would sin, just like he knew that you and I would sin. God is not surprised by anything we do. God exists outside of time. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the end from the beginning, and he proclaims the end from the beginning. And that is why the plan for Jesus to pay the price for our sin was laid out even before creation. Revelation chapter 13 uh, verses 7 and 8 speaking of the Antichrist says, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And then verse 8 continues, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, and here's the important part, slain from the foundation of the world. So Jesus paying the penalty for your sin and mine was part of the plan before the universe was even created. I mean, God knew you and I would blow it and go astray. God also knew the people on earth at this time, in chapter 6, would reach a level of evil that could not be redeemed. So it didn't catch God by surprise. God was not up in heaven stressing out, wringing his hands, trying to figure out what to do next because he didn't see this one coming. So if that's the case, then what does it mean when the Bible says God regretted making man? And there seems to be three different ways we can approach this question. One is to simply rethink our view of God and his omniscience, like was done in the, quote, openness of God movement or in what's called open theism which basically argues that God doesn't know the future. I mean, this isn't a new movement. It's not a new view. 
but it doesn't mean that it's correct either. It just means it's not new. I mean, these same arguments and beliefs were condemned as far back as the 16th century. Another possibility is that we simply have not accurately translated the verse or, or maybe particular words correctly, and we need to go back and reevaluate how we have translated the original Hebrew. The problem for this particular verse is that the Hebrew word translated here as regret or to grieve or, or to change one's mind is translated ten different ways in Scripture. Now, it's normal that Hebrew words have different meanings, and their exact meaning is determined by the context in which they're used. But this many variations of meaning shows just how complex this particular Hebrew word is. But at the end of the day, there seems to be no getting around the idea of what is generally being communicated here. The third option is to simply read this verse in an anthropomorphic sense, meaning Genesis is simply using language to express God's feelings in a way in which we can understand and relate to them. For example, the Bible says that God sets his face against evil and he causes his face to shine upon us. Well, God doesn't have a face. God is also said to have stretched out his hand over the sea, scattered his enemies with his mighty arm, and he keeps his eyes on the land. And so these verses, if we take them literally, would indicate that God literally has hands and arms and eyes. But God is not a physical being. He's spiritual. So when the Bible uses these types of phrases, it's doing so in human terms, in a way that humans can more easily understand what's being communicated. And that's what is meant by an anthropomorphic sense. And this is the way most commentators approach this verse. So let's move to verses 8 through 10. And verse 8 begins, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now I'm going to skip a... Quick discussion on Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth here, because we'll have an opportunity to do that after the flood. So even though God is going to blot out man from the face of the earth, Noah finds favor with God. It says that Noah was a righteous man. Now understand, saying that Noah was righteous was not saying that he was righteous in comparison to God's standards, but that he was righteous compared to other people living at that time and that he was wholly committed to righteousness. Now that actually says a lot about Noah, though. It's difficult to be a good person when you're surrounded by evil people. I mean, there are not a lot of people, even today, who have the moral courage to reject their environment. And we've already mentioned how much worse and evil the environment was in the days of Noah. And it also says that Noah walked with God. Do you remember the same was said about Enoch? In the last chapter... In chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Enoch walked with God. And then what did it say? It said that Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. And we discussed that and talked about it meaning that Enoch was snatched up by God or he was raptured by God. And we talked about how Enoch walking with God meant that he enjoyed a special fellowship with God, a real communion with God. And as a result, Enoch was taken by God prior to the judgment that was about to take place. Well, just like Enoch, Noah also walked with God, and he too will be protected during the coming judgment. Enoch was protected by being removed from the earth prior to the judgment, 
Noah would be protected through the judgment. In either case, we can learn one thing. When we walk with God, when we have a fellowship with Him, when we trust in Him, we can be sure to be delivered from death. And when I say death here, I'm referring to ultimate spiritual death or separation from God for eternity. Enoch and Noah's rescue was physical, but it is a beautiful picture of the permanent spiritual rescue that believers can trust in. Until next time, regardless of how bad you think things are getting these days, and I would agree, we seem to be on a trajectory that needs to be reined in, and and really, I mean, what can we expect when we seem to want to turn our back on so much of what God has instructed? But remember, at least for now, all the thoughts of all the people are not evil continually. There's reason for hope. I mean, there are still good people out there. There are Christians who walk with God and still hunger for righteousness. So keep heart and realize that not everyone is going to be a believer. In fact, believers in Christ will be a minority. Remember, Jesus told us in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So don't be disheartened and alarmed by what we're witnessing in the world today. It's exactly what we should expect as our country and you know, so much of the world drifts further and further from God. But just like Noah did, we should continue to walk with God and remain righteous, knowing that no matter what happens, God will ultimately save us if we accept the sacrifice in the extremes that he has gone through for us. So place your trust and faith in him. So for anyone listening to this episode, as we begin to discuss Noah and the society in which he lived, I implore you to consider the words of Jesus when he spoke of his return in Matthew 24, starting in verse 37, when he said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The point is, you don't have an unlimited amount of time. And just like the people of Noah's day, you don't know when time is up until it's too late. In his mercy, God is patient, but he will not withhold his judgment indefinitely. The story of the flood has as much to do with rescue as it does with judgment. And that is what we'll begin to look at over the next couple of episodes. So in the next episode, we'll take a look at and do a deep dive into Noah's Ark, maybe in a way that you never have before. I hope you'll join me. And until then, God bless.